Welcome to the podcast of the preaching ministry of LifePoint Church, led by Pastor Lane Harrison. We pray this ministry is a blessing for your life. For more information about LifePoint, please visit lifepointozark.com. For more information and resources from Pastor Lane, please visit mlaneharrison.com. Well, today we're going to look at Revelation 17 and 18, and the message is entitled, The Great Prostitute and the Beast, from Revelation 17 and 18. And these two chapters really culminate the judgment of God at the end of all things. We've looked at them briefly in chapters 15 and 16. Today, we kind of unpack them a little more to see more detail about what transpires. As we prepare for the message today, though, I want to ask you, have you ever learned a lesson from someone else's mistake? Have you ever learned a lesson from someone else's mistake? I mean, part of maturing in life in general is you're able to see someone else's mistake or yeah, even a failure and hopefully bring some application to your own life, right? Well, I need to tell you about a situation in my own life that happened when I was a senior in high school. We had been out with several of my friends one night and and I lived in a really small community at this time, uh, uh, about 750 people on the population sign. And so our communication was very effective. Uh, I often joked that in the hometown where I lived in my high school years, uh, uh, rumor mill was so effective, you typically heard about things before they actually happened. Um, and so, uh, but the, the, the challenge, and for those of you under 40, I'm going to try to cross the generational lines here. Like the phone rang and like your pocket didn't buzz. Like you had to go to where the phone was located in the house and like pick it up. And then you had to stand there while you talked on the phone. I know some of y'all have never done that before. So about 12, 1230 at night, the phone rang and I, I picked it up and answered. And somebody said, Blake's house is on fire. And I went, oh my goodness, that was the guy I'd just been out with him. I slammed the phone down. I jumped in the car. And with all of my firefighting knowledge, I sped over to his house. Got there about the same time that the volunteer fire department got there and they started unloading and fighting the fire and there were already 30 or 40 people standing around in the street outside of his house and so I just parked right there in the middle of the street, got out of the car and began running towards the crowd and looking and then all of a sudden in the darkness of the night, he just kind of came out of the crowd towards me and all of a sudden I, I forgot about his house being on fire because my friend whom I'd spent the night prior and the hours leading up to this hour with him emerged from the crowd, scantily clad, only wearing his underwear. And to describe, it's okay to laugh. This is actually funny. It's not going to have a bad ending to it, okay? I know you told my revelation, this kid can't be talking about anything funny. Uh, but as he walked towards me and was going, hey, Lane, thanks for coming. I was like, oh, Whoa. I mean, you know, like he, what he had on was, uh, it starts with a T and a W and ends with E's. And I was like, man, I know, I, you know, so there were several of us that were kind of taken back by his attire. He was like, man, the, the fire happened so quickly. We just had to get out with whatever we had on. And after that night, and my wife, she always shudders when I tell this story. I've never slept in less than gym shorts and a T-shirt. Because, buddy, if a tornado comes or if the house catches on fire, I've at least got that. And I still see that vivid imagery of my buddy standing out in the middle among 30 or 40 of our close friends. Whew. 
That's an image I wish I could erase, but it's one of those I've not been able to. Now, this part is a little more serious. Through the years, uh, with the news of the fall, the moral collapse, emotional collapse of other pastors, Kristen and I through the years have had some very serious conversations. I remember in 2006, the church had been going for about a year and a half, and I'd been at a conference and recently heard about um, a pastor friend who had fallen and um, was no longer in the ministry. And man, it just, it shook me, scared me to death. And I came home and I told Kristen, whoa, if that person can be taken out, anybody can be taken out. And of course, over the last number of years with, it just seems the compounding and the multiplication of numbers since that time, we've, we've had, I don't even know how many conversations about where are we at? How is our marriage? Is our life secure? Are we safeguarding? Are we fighting for what we have so that the enemy does not get us? I've tried to learn those lessons and I've tried to live and accommodate and, and acclimate my life to ways where I don't have to worry about how close am I to it? How far can I get away from it? Today is a lesson you need to learn that we see in advance and we see what will be, but we need to be making life changes today in accordance with these things. And the main point of what I want you to see today is this. God calls people to believe in Jesus and walk by faith in his righteousness. For he will judge all wickedness to eternal damnation, but the righteous will live forever with him. And we're going to look at five lessons this morning of Babylon's demise in order to heed for our faithfulness of following Jesus. There is going to be a stark contrast in the text today, and the question remains which is most definitive of you and your life? And for the Christian today, it is not for us to go, hey, I'm good, I'm in, don't have to worry about it. But it's for us to have that constant reoccurring conversation with the Lord. Lord, if there is any way in me that is not fully surrendered to you, show that to me and correct me today. And of course, if you are here today, and you've never come to a point in your life where you've put your faith in Jesus Christ and repented of your sins, the invitation stands for you today to become a Christian. Because friends, what lies ahead, though we live in a world that is so numb and mundane to it, even the church of today is so silent about it, that doesn't make it any less real and any less forthcoming than it is. Let's begin. I don't have time to read all of the text today, but I will do my best to keep you up with where I am in walking through it. I want to begin with verse 1 of chapter 17, where it says, Then one of the seven angels who had the seven bowls came and said to me, Come, I will show you the judgment of the great prostitute who is seated on many waters, with whom the kings of the earth have committed sexual immorality, and with the wine of whose sexual immorality the dwellers on earth have become drunk. May God bless the reading, the hearing, the understanding, and the obeying of his word today. One angel with a bowl, 
one of the bowls of wrath that we saw last week, the final in the three series of God's series of judgments. Now one of those angels comes and invites John to behold the judgment of the great prostitute that is seated on many waters. She is one with whom the kings of the earth have committed their sexual immorality and she is one with whom the earth dwellers have become drunk. The wealth and the prosperity is her seduction of kings and the false promises that she makes to them, but she only grants it to those who fully indulge in her vices and her idolatries. And what the kings promoted, the people of their lands fully embraced in the worship of the beast. Now, sexual immorality here surely includes literal sexual immorality, but the way it is used here includes far more than only that. It's not only a literal understanding of the words here that are necessary, but it is referring to the breadth and the depth and the extent in which the people of the nations identified with their king, who was identifying with the woman who sat upon many waters in her practices, in her vices, and her idolatry. And then it tells us that the angel carried John away into the wilderness in the spirit. Again, we see this phrase that reminds us that the Lord Jesus is opening his eyes to see with spiritual discernment things that he could not have seen otherwise. And it tells us here that the woman is sitting on the beast full of blasphemous names. And the beast is the same beast we've seen with seven heads and ten horns. That beast is Satan. And the woman's seated on the many waters is now seated on the dragon. This is to show how intimately that she is tied both to the nations of the earth, which we will learn in a moment is represented by the many waters, but also how she is tied directly to the antichrist, the dragon upon which she rides. But her appearance is captivized and mesmerizing. It, this is something we need to take note in. Like, like when she is seen, we will see that it is difficult to look away visually. She is everything that attracts and mesmerizes. And by her features, she lures men to drink of her abominations and of her immoralities. But the name on her forehead is titled this. She is Babylon the great, mother of prostitutes and of earth's abominations. Boy, don't forget your name tag. Make sure everybody sees your name, right? I mean, that's a name nobody wants to forget or nobody wants to remember one way or the other. She identifies herself as the capital city of the beast from which the influence and her influence will seek to spread to every other city so that they too will become drunk with, and I quote, the blood of saints and the martyrs of Jesus. You see, in John's mind, it is clear Babylon in the scripture is a reference to Rome in the first century. But the influence extends far beyond only Rome in the first century. Babylon is consumed with every imaginable abomination and immorality, and it is filled with the blood of God's people. The first lesson I want you to see today that we must learn is this. Babylon deceives people to destruction by worshiping the Antichrist. 
Babylon deceives people to destruction by worshiping the Antichrist. Jesus honors with eternal life those who faithfully serve him even unto death. Mark chapter 8 verse 35 states, For whoever would save his life will lose it, but whoever loses his life for my sake and the gospels will save it. The message of the gospel of Jesus Christ is diametrically opposite to the message of Babylon that says indulge, immerse in every manner, form, and kind now. It will be your greatest life. Adorned with the allure of indulgence in the worldly beast, in worldly riches, in worldly pleasures, and worldly indulgence, Babylon is the deceptive prostitute of the Antichrist, drunk on the blood of God's people, and will only lead to eternal damnation. You see, we've seen indications of who she was leading up till now, but her identity and what she does has now become very clear. She lures people away from Jesus to worship the beast by the indulgence in every immorality and idolatry and relentlessly persecuting all who will not participate with her. You see, understand this, worship is defined by participation. There are rituals through which you participate in the activity of worship. It's not a theoretical concept that is nebulous. It is real and actual in the participation and actions of one's life. But though Babylon lures people away and promises them everything in this life, only lead them to eternal Damnation, Jesus' promises to give life to those who give up their life in following him. And so this first question is a question of application. Learning this first lesson, we ask ourselves, whose life or who am I loving with my life? Do I love the world and its allure and, and am I indulging in it? Or am I loving Jesus and his promise of abundant and eternal life. Friends, look at your participations, look at the activities of your life, not just the right answer that maybe you've learned or been trained to do, and consider where you stand in this today. Now, it would be easy for us to consider and to think, well, this woman is just deplorable and reprehensible. I mean, after all, we've been given her titles and her names, we might think that. But John's reaction in the text is actually extremely opposite of that. The end of verse 6 says, when I saw her, I marveled greatly. When I saw her, I marveled greatly. In other words, he was amazed at her. He couldn't take his eyes off of her. But her reality was quite different than her appearance. It was quite different than her appearance. In verse 7 of chapter 17, the angel responds to inquire to John, John, why are you marveling greatly as you did? 
And what the angel begins to do is to interpret what he has seen that was so mesmerizing visually and alluring to the inner senses of his life. The angel interprets to reveal that there is an inseparable relationship between the woman and the beast. That the beast who had been slain will now have a satanic embodiment that will exceed anything that has yet occurred. It will be very short because the beast will go immediately to his final eternal doom. But he will have an embodiment. And just as John marveled, he understands how it is that the earth dwellers themselves will marvel in order to be deceived by this woman. And then verse 9, John tells us his description requires a mind with wisdom. In other words, the human capacity, human intellect cannot see this alone. It requires spiritual discernment that only God gives. And he begins to interpret what it is that the seven heads and the horns uh, represent upon the beast. The seven heads of the beast are recognized by most scholars, not all, but by most as representing Rome, the capital city of the empire of the first century. The Roman empire is notorious for still being historically the longest standing empire in history, spanning some 1,500 years. And at this time, they ruled the world. They were spanned from one to the other. And it tells us that the seven kings, though, that are represented, it's more complicated to understand exactly who it is that they are. Can we put our finger on exactly understanding this? Some people think it was the ascension of the Roman emperors with uh, Nero and with Domitian, and they moved through there. But when you look at the time frame of when the book was written, you're really looking at 10, not just seven kings, and it doesn't work exactly right, and so it probably isn't that. Others argue that it is a succession of secular empires that are represented. And so there are these debates, what is it representing in there? But most agree when we dial back to the number seven, and we think about what we've talked about in interpreting the book of Revelation, that the number seven represents more of a symbolic power of the Roman empire empire, but the perfection of it or the completion or the togetherness of it. In other words, it represents a whole. There's a completeness in there because ultimately, as one scholar said, no simple answer will suffice to answer this. Why? Because the woman formed an adulterous connection in every epoch of her history with the then existing world power. What do I mean by that? That the effectiveness of the woman, the antichrist power and marriage with Satan and the dragon was not only effective in the first century, it's been effective in every century of human history. That's what the scripture is telling us. It's, it's warning us about a power of the prince of darkness that is ruling in the world of which we must be ready to stand against. We cannot stand against it, but God in us will. This is what John is seeing and he is describing its worldly power in general rather than an only one historic era. 
And through the ages, many have tried to assign meaning to the heads and to the horns of the beast and have gotten even more particular into the exactness of this. And typically, the more exact they get, the more adamant they are about their perspective. But I tell you, they're all guesses at best. They're not explicit to the scriptures, so be warned and be careful. One commentator, Robert Mount, says it this way, the single purpose in all the number schemes, talking of revelation and their representation and how to interpret them, is to declare the imminence of the end of the age. The important point is simply this, the end is very near. There is some shock in this for us because life has a way of numbing us to this message, of dulling our senses to respond adequately. Verse 11, it tells us an eighth emerges who is like but distinct from the first seven, speaking of the king's. And this one is not a human ruler, but this one is the Antichrist. It is an evil power manifested, literally present, who emerges in history, and yes, as a man and will rule during the Great Tribulation. Now, we've seen that this period is a period of seven years, but particularly half of which, three and a half years, will be most severe. And his reign, though, will be truncated, as we saw just a few chapters ago, because God will say, that's it, that's enough, no more. And he'll stop him. And he'll be doomed to destruction. You say, well, how do we respond to this? The same way that I started the entire series in Revelation, friends. People who believe in Jesus Christ, who by faith are seeking to walk with him daily in the righteousness that he has put up on us, understand that Revelation provides for us the sense of urgency and priority. Not anxiety and nervousness or worry. No, urgency and priority that we understand and we recognize Satan's work and how it is that he aligns with the worldly powers of every age so that we as the people of God live ready now to bear a faithful witness to the gospel of Jesus Christ. We learn from this lesson, not how we live on that day, but how we live today in preparation for that day. John explains the 10 horns are 10 kings who will receive authority, and I quote the scriptures, for one hour together with the beast. And so their rule will be only for a very short period. And then the number 10, the 10 horns or the 10 kings are symbolic of the completeness again here of the worldly powers that hand over power, their power to the Antichrist. So now the Antichrist is ruling the kingdoms of this world and they share with him the hostility to Christ and to his followers so that they make war on them and persecute and make life very miserable for them and uncomfortable. But they too will be conquered by the lamb and be conquered by those who are with the lamb. Don't miss that. Because those, it says, that are called and chosen and faithful will overcome because the lamb by whom they are called and chosen and faithful to has conquered. 
Our victory is in the victory of Jesus Christ that was accomplished on the cross 2,000 years ago, no matter how many years it is before he comes again. Whether or not we win is not on the table for discussion. That matter is settled. We need not live in fear of what is to come. The angel turns now John's attention back to the prostitute, verse 15, whose judgment John was originally invited to see, but then the focus kind of shifted to the Antichrist. Here is where he learns that the many waters upon which she originally sat at the beginning of the chapter represented all the people of the world who supported her. And there is this sense of the universality of this woman as the capital city that represents all the powers of the world. But we see here as she rides the dragon that a civil war, all of the world's powers are united. If you remember, all the kings gladly gave their power over to the Antichrist. There was this, if you will, one world order and they were all united against Christ and all of his followers. But the word tells us here beginning in verse 15, that a civil war breaks out through the powers of the beast and he turns to ruthlessly destroy the woman who is riding on his back. And everything that once caused John to marvel at her is completely undone by her destruction. It tells us she is stripped bare and she is devoured by the wild beasts. But then John gives us some insight and tells us who it is that caused all of this to happen. Are you ready for this? You might want to buckle your seatbelts. God is the one who put it into the heart of the beast to carry out his purpose. God is the one, it tells us, who put it into the minds of all the kings to unite together, to lead their nations and all their people to come together as one unto the Antichrist and to hand over their royal power until God's purpose was fulfilled. Then, then in judgment, the great city that held the dominion over all the kings of the earth was devoured by its allies. Why? Because God, who is King of kings and Lord of lords, is sovereign over all things. Friends, when the psalmist says that the heart of the king is held in the hand of God like streams of water, this is literally what that verse is speaking of. God is carrying forth his sovereign plan and the one who is righteous, we see here, rules sovereignly over all who are wicked. The second lesson we learn here to accommodate our lives and live by is this. Righteous living, friends, provides its own reward with life, while the wicked and wicked living destroys the one who indulges it. Is it worth it to trust Christ and to obey his word? It absolutely is. Not only for the immediacy of today, but for eternity as well. Psalm 1-6 says this, the Lord he knows the way of the righteous, but the way of the wicked will perish. Friends, I'm going to put it in really practical terms for you. When you run with losers, you become a loser. When you run with the wicked, you become wicked. As my mother used to say, birds of a feather flock together. You keep running with that set of friends, it's not going to serve you well. 
Friends, the wicked never last. Why? Because they devour their own by the bloodthirst that consumes them. The interesting part is not even the wicked know that they can trust other wickedness. That's why they say things like, keep your friends close, keep your enemies closer, trust, but not too much. But friends, listen, the righteous never lose. Why? Because as with the wicked, it is their friends, their allies who devour them. With the righteous, even their enemies are held in the hand of the one who rules them, who is righteous. The wicked fear their friends. The righteous fear none because even their enemies are controlled by their sovereign God. This is not a hard lesson. When you walk with God, your every enemy is conquered because Jesus has overcome. When you walk with the wicked, you'll be devoured by those with whom you're most closely aligned because wickedness is condemned. And so the question for application is this. Have you trusted in Jesus to be counted among the righteous, called and chosen and faithful in him? Have you put your faith in Jesus to be counted among the righteous? When we move to chapter 18, we begin to see the details of the final destruction of Babylon. And it provides them in poetic form, if you will. The description is extensive And what John sees is now another angel who comes down from heaven with great authority, it says. And this angel calls out, Babylon has fallen. And the way he says it denotes its finality and its completeness, even though it has not yet occurred. The description is haunting, friends. The description that it provides of the place where the detestable spirits and the wicked creatures call home. And the influence of Babylon, it it, it describes as vast. It's reaching to every nation and it uh, it reaches to every means of commerce and it's drawing in to participate all who give into it in her immorality and, and even to grow rich from her luxurious indulgence in this day. It tells us that Babylon has seduced the nations to think that they can dispense with God. That their safety, their security, and their prosperity will follow in her luxury and in the self-indulgence of her idolatries. But friends, this self-indulgence is self-deception. For the final answer will come from the decree of God. That all who indulge with Babylon will stand guilty by their participation before God. And then another voice from heaven comes and cries out. And it calls out to God's people to come out from Babylon so they will not suffer her demise. It tells us that God has remembered her iniquities. This is a very important phrase for us as we will see the contrast of it in just a moment. But the angel is calling to God's people, the time has come, come out from her so you will not suffer her demise. 
I have remembered her iniquities. God says he will pay her back double the portions that she mixed for others by her own influence. And this voice declares that her judgment will match in righteousness what she performed and influenced by indulgence in wickedness. And though she glorified herself, she will only come to know torment and suffering. Though she calls herself a queen and she claims inviolability, she will be stricken and destroyed by the mighty hand of God in justice. Her destruction will be swift and she'll be consumed to show the Lord's mighty power. The third lesson that we must learn today in order to accommodate our life to follow Jesus is this. God calls his people to live set apart from so we do not suffer judgment that's coming on the world. God calls his people to live set apart from. And friends, even if we were to go back into Paul's writings in Corinthians chapter 6 where he speaks to the church at Corinth and he tells them in the context of sexuality that God says, come out from among them and be holy because I am holy. And I am the one who calls you out. So the angel here is calling the people of God, not just from a geographical relocation, but from a spiritual identification. Come out of their immoralities. Come out of their indulgences. Come out of their idolatries and live holy as I am holy and righteous as I have placed my righteousness upon you. For I, the Lord, your God have spoken. And here's the beauty of this, friends, of the remembrance of God. Hebrews chapter 8, verse 12 tells us why it is that God calls his people out in this way. He says of his people, I will be merciful toward their iniquities and I will remember their sins no more. Friends, if there's anything you want to get excited about today, it's excited about what God remembers and what he remembers no more. God calls his people to come out from the world and he sets our lives apart unto him because we are his temple. By his spirit, he has taken up residence within us in this world. And I want you to note here why it is that God calls his people out. He calls them out because he remembers the iniquity of Babylon and he is coming in judgment. This is a stark contrast between the sins of God's people whom he remembers no more and the sins of the peoples of the world whom he has remembered and it has moved him to bring judgment. God remembers the iniquities of Babylon to judge so that they will be known no more because their sins are not atoned. But... God remembers his people to call them to come out because he remembers no more the sins of those who've been washed and separated from their sin by the blood of Jesus Christ. Amen? Absolutely amen. When you reject Jesus, God remembers your sin and judgment. When you trust Jesus, believe to receive him, God remembers your name to call you out because he remembers your sin no more. That's beautiful. I mean, that's glorious beyond compare, friends. And so I ask you this question to apply it to your life. Have you responded to the Lord's call 
to come out from the worldliness and to come away from your sin, to be atoned, to be washed in the blood of Jesus, justified before God, cleansed and set apart unto him. Is that the reality of your life? Have you been saved? Have you been saved? Friends, the difference is this. On the day when he returns, he will either remember your sin and judgment or he will remember your name in glory. Babylon was so great, no one dared to think she could fall. But when she fell, it was in an instant. Verses 9 through 20 recount this for us. Those who had lavished in her riches and her luxuries watched her burn. But it tells us they only watched from a distance because they feared the torment that they were seeing. You see, in Babylon, the mighty fall, and in a single hour, her judgment comes. And all the glory and the riches of this world, the pleasures and its delicacies, the convenience and the indulgences, and yea, even the great extent of them are suddenly brought to nothing. In an instant. That's what these verses are all about, friends. Those who watched her torment now weep and mourn because the one who was clothed and the one who was adorned in every way, who captivated and mesmerized, now has been laid waste. And yet in a single hour, no one expected this. The ship and the shipmasters were coming into port. They were bringing all of their wares to sail. And the merchants were coming to take their wares and to go back and do business and to live life and enjoy the luxuries of all the abundance that they had and the people were preparing to buy at will to any extent at will and then to take home and adorn their life at will with whatever they wanted and by their indulgence and it tells us even then immediately it was no more it stopped and those who watched her torment wept and mourned because she was laid waste in a single hour. You see, the fact here is not so much that she was laid waste, though she was. It was the suddenness and the quickness of it. How could this possibly crumble that quickly? The angel declares in verse 20, Rejoice over her, O heaven, and you saints and apostles and prophets, for God has given judgment for you against her. Friends, I want to tell you why people are weeping and mourning, though at a distance because of the fear that has stricken their heart. Heaven is rejoicing. Fear has no place among the people of God. Heaven rejoices because the one who is sovereign has shown himself true and faithful. Unimaginable riches and wealth and indulgence and pleasure for every desire are all gone. But heaven and all God's saints rejoice because he has vindicated his holy name and he has saved from destruction those he redeemed. I want to point out, point out four brief items of note that you need to consider here. First of all, is simply the extent of Babylon's riches and wealth. They had every luxury imaginable in life. And the way that John lists them is he's emphasizing just simply the extent of the abundance and the significance of the influence that it had on the people. They were duped by these things. Their affluence literally had them stupored to reality. 
And these were all the things he tells us that filled their life to consume their heart. He identifies three groups that beheld Babylon's demise and they were all stunned. The kings, they had no idea that it was coming. The merchants who were going out and the seafarers and the sea masters, they were all completely, these are all the leaders of what's transpiring. They had absolutely no idea what was taking place. They were stunned by it. Thirdly, for us to note is that each one that watched her torment did only so from a distance because of the sheer fear that they felt of the torment and what they saw. Listen to me, friends. When you stand before God, you will answer for your own sin and there will be no one beside you with you. It'll be the most isolated place one has ever experienced. That's what John is telling us here. The people who were all together as one wanted nothing to do with each other at this moment. It was every man for himself, run for your lives. Panic and fear didn't just set in, it ruled in ultimate chaos. And now, verses 10, 17, and 19, it tells us of the sudden and completeness of Babylon's destruction in a single hour laid waste. It's hard to find any shrapnel left from that statement. Proverbs 18.11 tells us what happened when it says that a rich man's wealth is his strong city and like a high wall is his imagination. In other words, that verse is telling us that deceptive thinking leads to deceived living. This could not possibly happen. It will never happen. And here we see it absolutely happened. It was unimaginable that life would ever be without all that was so abundant, but even more conceivable how quickly it all came to an end. The allure of this world is so captivating. It's so deceiving that it makes us think we are stable and we are secure. But friends, the sound of God's judgment silences Babylon. He silences wickedness and he vindicates the righteousness of his name. The fourth lesson we learn today is this, that the security of worldly riches is futile and meaningless It is deceptive on earth unless it is invested for eternity. Worldly riches indulge the pleasures to deceive, to believe that we are safe and secure. But indulgence is always a strategy of deception. Psalm 49 makes clear that worldly uh, worldly riches will never rescue a life and it warns of the deception of riches. Verse 7 of Psalm 49 says, Truly no man can ransom another or give to God the price of his life. Friends, there is no worldly resource that purchases security from God only to submit all of one's life to him. Can we know that we are secure in Christ. And so the question of application today is this Are you trusting your worldly resource as a security for your life? Or are you trusting in God even with the resource of your life? Finally, verse 21 through 24 
says a mighty angel shows up and throws a millstone into the sea and declares the end of Babylon. For the sounds of Babylon will be no more. She is silent, she is dark, she is empty, she is dead in every realm of the city. But there is one last quality and one final guilt of Babylon that is most important. First of all, that quality, the angel declares, for her merchants were the great ones of the earth and all the nations were deceived by her sorcery. You see, it tells us that it wasn't just her wealth that was her demise, it was her pride and arrogance. Rome did not fall because outside enemies conquered it. Rome fell because inner heart crumbled. It was a shell by the time it fell. And that's what it's telling us here, the great ones of the earth. This is arrogance. This is prideful. This is trust in self above all others. For her sin was not only consisting in her wealth, but in her pride and her self-exaltation. Babylon's quality that produced her every imaginable immorality and deceived the nations to lead to her downfall was arrogance and pride. We don't need God. And this one quality was coupled with her one final guilt. When God came calling, in her was found the blood of the prophets and of the saints and all those who had been slain on the earth. God came for the redeemed and he found the blood of his people in Babylon and God doesn't put up with that. God vindicates the righteousness of his name and in so doing, he answers the prayers of his people. The prayers of the saints that have gone up for the vindication of his holy name and he says, I will answer these. You see, Babylon's spirit of pride and arrogance fueled her hate for God in alliance with the beast to produce her guilt over who she persecuted, God's people. And John speaks of her influence far beyond only in his time, more of what you might call an eschatological Babylon. For the wicked influence of Satan, married with the human pride, allied together, became a catalyst for far greater immorality and persecution than only what was known in first century Rome. In other words, to be active and powerful, yea, even today. Satan aligns with the powers of this world to persecute and to destroy God's people. But his every effort is frustrated and will be ultimately stopped by God's sovereign rule. Here's lesson number five that we'll conclude with today. The spirit of Babylon remains alive and strong today to ally with Satan and destroy God's people. But it will only deceive and lead to eternal damnation. Friends, Paul's words to the church at Corinth in 1 Corinthians chapter 10, verse 12 are appropriate for us today when he says to them, let anyone who thinks that he stands take heed lest he fall. The very idea that you're not in the crosshairs of Satan's allure, that you're not tempted by the things of this world, the very idea that you are in some way safe and secure from God's judgment for any reason other than the blood of Jesus Christ puts you directly in the path of what is coming. You will fall. It will be sudden. It will be complete. 
This is the lure of the spirit of Babylon. It is as deceptive today as it's always been, and it remains as strong today as it has ever been. It is an alliance with Satan that consumes all of one's hope and consumes all of one's promise in this world for this life here and now with no consideration beyond. But it always deceives to lead to eternal damnation in the end. You see, every time one gives in to sin's temptation, another allegiance with Satan is struck. Every time another worldly resource is treasured above the glory of Christ, an allegiance with Satan is struck. Every time another immorality is indulged against the command of Christ, another allegiance with Satan is struck. Every time another adultery is committed against the promise of our salvation in Christ, whether it is sexual or whether it is in any other area of life, another allegiance with Satan is struck. Every time an idol is adored in your heart above the truth of God's word, above the wisdom of the spirit of God or the power of God revealed to us in his word and allegiance with Satan is struck. You're giving in to the spirit of Babylon. And that river only flows to the eternal damnation of God's judgment. You will not walk with the wicked in this world and rejoice with the saints in eternity. The only way to gain in this world is to honor the Lord through your all, that he might be the one that fills your heart all with his righteousness. I ask you today that the life you live today and the choices you make require you to ask of yourself, where will you be found on the day God returns when his judgment comes? Will your name be remembered because you've been called out and you're walking with the one who's called you, who's chosen you, and who is faithful? Or will it be your sins that he remembers in judgment as you stand alone before him? God calls people to believe in Jesus and to walk by faith in his righteousness. He will judge all wickedness to eternal damnation, but the righteous will live forever with him.